You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. morning. Well, we apologize if as you came into the parking lot this morning, you were disturbed to see a man being dragged out by five of our security people. He was found wearing a Patriots jersey this morning. Ms. White, you know exactly who we're talking about. Yes, 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 yes. Your husband, he has all kinds of audacity, doesn't he? He wore a cowboy shirt last week. We said he's an equal opportunity offender. No question. And it took five of them because the guy's about seven feet tall. Yep. So, but we, we got him removed and peace has been restored now. Praise the Lord. Among the congregation. Goodness gracious. Well, this morning we are continuing the series that we've started that the video was about, which is Contentious Christianity. In the little book of Jude, it's only one chapter. This morning we are coming to the fifth through the seventh verse, okay? And... This message this morning and what Jude says to those Christians is this morning is about history. So, you know, I think I thought about history. I love all I love history. I love Bible history. I love, you know, world history. I love sports history. History isn't somewhere we're supposed to live, but it is a good place to visit every now and then. So we shouldn't live in the past, but we should go there every now and then just to look at it so that we can learn from it. I heard a great story this week uh, from baseball history, and it relates to a major league umpire by the name of Marty Springstead. And the story is about his first time calling balls and strikes from behind the plate. Can you imagine the, the tension and the stress of your first time in a major league game calling balls and strikes? It's, it's incredible. And he actually umpired for about 20 years in the, in the major leagues before he retired. But the story is about a, a baseball player by the name of Frank Howard, who uh, was six foot seven and 240 pounds. He played for the Dodgers, and then he ultimately played for the Washington Senators, which actually became the uh, Texas Rangers in the early 70s. And, and Frank Howard was given a number of uh, nicknames by, former, by other players. One of them is Hondo, and I, I don't really know why they called him Hondo. If somebody understands the story behind Hondo, maybe you do. But I can understand the other two, because when he was playing for the Washington Senators, they called him the Washington Monument. <laughs> they called him the Capitol Punisher. That kind of gives you an idea that, uh, you know, this one tough dude. In fact, he retired from major leagues with 382 home runs. And at the time of his retirement, that was eighth in all-time major league history. He's been passed up a bunch of times since the day of steroids has come in. But, you know, he was, he was, one, he was one talented hitter. And he had a reputation for being a man that you just didn't mess with. You just didn't cross him, not because, only because of his size, but because of his temperament. And so the story is told, and I don't know if it's true or if it's just baseball myth, but I love it, the story, that where Frank came up to the plate, and this new Springsteen, you know, umpire's behind the plate, and the pitcher threw a, a fastball that was right across the knees, and the umpire, Springstead, he says, strike, the way that they used to do it. Frank turned to him and said, I don't know where you're from or how you got here, but you need to know that in this league, they don't call that ball a strike on me. The next pitch, the pitcher put it exactly in the same place, right across the knee, knees. And the umpire springs, he said, two. Frank turned to him and said, two what? And the ump said, too low, much, much too low. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't know if that's true or if it's just baseball legend and myth, but I do know this, I do know this. If you live long enough, Eventually, you will find yourself put into a situation where your beliefs will be challenged, where you will be tempted in that moment to compromise what you believe. And what history teaches us, biblical history teaches us, is that it never works out in the long run. For the short time, there might be a payoff, but in the long run, it never works out when you compromise God's Word or God's will or God's ways. And so for that reason, Jude says in verses 5 through 7, he, he, he gives a warning to these Christians to whom he is writing 
to watch about, out about this compromise thing because he says there are some, we talked about last week, he says, who have crept into your midst. They've crept in and they uh, have brought with them ideas and concepts that they are trying to distort the faith in your midst. You must not follow them, for to follow them would be compromised. In fact, in verse 2 that we looked at in the very first week, where he said, contend for the faith. Contend against them. And so we've given the title of this series of message, Contentious Christians, because we are called to contend for the faith. And in verses 5 through 7, Jude takes them on a trip down memory lane. And he reminds them of some biblical history. And he says to them, don't ignore what God did in these situations. And ultimately, he reminds them what happens when People reject God's word when they reject God's will and when they distort God's ways. This is how God has operated in history, and you need to be aware of that so that you do not follow that path and contend with those who try to deceive. And oftentimes, the saying that is so trite is very true. The only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history, and that is sadly true. Because history is a great teacher. History is not a place that we should live, but is a place that we should visit periodically because there are great lessons to be learned from history. And so that's what Jude is trying to do. He's trying to take these Christians back into history and say, you remember how God acted in this situation? You remember what God did in this situation? He will do it again today. You must contend for the faith. You're up, buddy. Oh, <laughs> sorry. You know, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to do two things at once here. So, are you writing this? Uh, the someone just don't worry about it. He had a um, tough week this week. Didn't have time to do preparation, so he's preparing I'm right now. I'm not preparing. I already preached the message once. I'm very prepared. <laughs> okay. Good. Uh, you know, we, we we did talk about this that that Wednesday we um, we are covering the Old Testament in an Old Testament survey class, and I was reminded this week of a story we actually just talked about on Wednesday about King Josiah. Uh, Josiah is uh, one of the last good kings of, actually the last good king of Judah before Judah's ultimate demise into Babylonian exile. And uh, by the time Josiah comes into reign, he is, uh, he's inherited a kingdom that's already condemned. Judah is already on its way out because of his grandfather Manasseh, nasty Manasseh. Nasty Manasseh. Uh, he uh, has inherited a kingdom that is already going to be uh, under judgment of God and into exile. And, and, and he's still a good king, though, and he tries to do some good things. One of the things he does is have the temple repaired because the temple hasn't been used in years. And so they go in there, and they're moving around old dusty boxes and old, you know, stuff, furniture that hasn't been touched in a long time. And Hilkiah, his high priest, finds a book, and he opens the book, and his jaw drops as he begins to read it. And he takes it to the secretary of the king, and the secretary, he reads it, and his jaw drops, and he takes it to the king. He says, King, you got to read this. And so Josiah, for the very first time, opens what we believe is the book of Deuteronomy <laughs> and sees just how far off the beaten course they have gone. God's word had been on the coffee table for so long that it was three inches deep in in. Dust. Yes, exactly. What is, it, what is it Spurgeon used to say, or Jonathan Edwards, I think is who it used to say, that if, if there's dust on your Bible, write the word condemned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty stout. Pretty stout. Yeah. But the idea here is that Josiah took a trip down memory lane. He went all the way back to God's word, and he saw how far they had drifted from it. And so Jude, with this passage of Scripture in verses 5 through 7, is seeking to take us on a trip down memory lane so that we might not end up in the same place as not only the people he's describing, but as King Josiah, where we come to a place where we realize we have gone so far off the path that there is no hope and that certain judgment awaits us like these individuals. So as we go on this trip this morning, understand, number one, this is not a message that is going to uplift you, all right? This is a hard passage of, of Scripture. And number two, if we do not heed the warning then we are subject to the same fate. You know, uh, I really, I said to Derek after the first service, I said, Derek, I think that is the most important message we've preached together in the two years that we've been doing this. Uh, because it is so current to where we are as a culture today, and you're going to understand that as we get into this and begin to make the application. That's right. So Judah's giving these Christians a warning. God has acted this way in the past when this happened. Don't you dare think <laughs> he will not act that way with you if it comes to that. 
So the first application or the first instance is those who do not believe God's Word. How has God acted in history when people do not believe His Word? Well, verse 5, Jude says, now I desire to remind you. In other words, I want you to look back in your history. I'm going to remind you of something that you know. But though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently, listen to this, destroyed those who did not believe. Now, they knew that. That was right out of their history. But he's just bringing it back and going back. And, okay, look at this. Now, the first example is obviously from Hebrew history that goes all the way back to the Egyptian captivity for 400 years after Joseph died and the Pharaoh rose who didn't know Joseph. He enslaved the people of God, the Hebrews who had been living in, in the land in Egypt. And then they became slaves for four centuries. And uh, he takes us back. Not only that, but then he takes us back to where God actually delivered them uh, out of Egypt uh, through the wilderness, ultimately to take them into the promised land. But for centuries, they had been in bondage in Egypt, and all that time, they had been crying out to God to deliver them. They'd been crying out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to deliver them from this bondage. And in God's time, he said, now is the time he raised up Moses, and Moses was sent to them to bring them out. But you see, not all among the Hebrew people who came out of Egypt believed God's Word. Not all of them were actually believers. And it showed repeatedly over and over and over. And what Jude is saying is what God actually did, they perished. The Scripture says that God actually destroyed them. Not a single person except two, and we're going to talk about it in a moment, who came out of Egypt as adults actually went into the promised land. God did not allow it. He destroyed every one of them in the wilderness. And three areas where they refused to believe God's Word are very instructive for us. First of all, they refused to believe Him for their freedom. As I said, for four centuries, they'd been living in bondage. Through Moses, God brought them out as God had promised. But before God could do that, He had to break Pharaoh's back and break Pharaoh's resistance. So God bring these, brought these 10 miraculous plagues upon Pharaoh to give him an attitude adjustment. And Pharaoh finally came to the point, he said, okay, y'all just go. Take everything you've got. Take everything we have that you want. Just get out of Egypt. We don't want you here anymore. So they did under Moses' leadership. And it wasn't very long before they arrived at a place called the Red Sea. A matter of days, actually. And this became the first test of who would believe God's Word. Because about that time, Pharaoh had a change of heart. He hardened his heart again, and he came after him with his chariots and his armies. So the sea was in front of them, blocking their path, and the Pharaoh was coming behind them to destroy them. The question is, in this test, did they believe God's Word to deliver them? I mean, they had every reason to. They'd seen God's miraculous acts over and over and over to break Pharaoh, to bring them out. But in Exodus chapter 14, it says, as they're standing at the sea, Pharaoh is coming with his armies. They cried out to Moses. And we understand, when they cry out to Moses, they're crying out to God. Because they knew Moses was God's deliverer. They knew Moses was God's appointment to lead them out. So whenever they complained against Moses, they were actually complaining against God. And they said to Moses, are there no graves in Egypt? That you brought us out here to die? They're going, what, what's up, dude? Did you just bring us out here to play a trick on us so that Pharaoh could come and kill us anyway? We could have died in Egypt. There are plenty of graves there. And so the first challenge they had, are they going to believe God's word? They caved. Mm. They showed their unbelief. Because what God said, he said, I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to take you into the land. Well, here they are. The first test. No, don't believe that, God. We think you probably brought us out here just for Pharaoh to slaughter us right here. To use a baseball metaphor, strike one. Strike one. Strike one. The second challenge was about their food. Because eventually, as they went through the sea, by this time, God's delivered them through the sea. Pharaoh's done with. Okay, so God did it again, even though they didn't believe him. All the provisions that they brought out of Egypt, well, they're all gone. You can't carry enough food for all the time it was going to take. And so they, got, they came on. And so immediately, they began to complain again to Moses and to God. And they said to Moses, Moses, have you brought us out here just to starve and die of thirst? You think, duh, are you kidding me? You saw what God did in Egypt. You saw how he delivered you through the sea. And now you don't have any food. And so you think that God has just brought you out here to starve and to die. What did he say? He said, I'm going to take you 
into the land. This sounds like what my kids say to me when we go on a road trip. <laughs> Have you brought us out here to starve? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dad has never allowed these kids to starve, yet still they question Dad. Still they question every time. Dad. Murmur, 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 murmur. Okay. That's actually an um, onomatopoeic word, isn't it? Yeah. Can you it say is. onomatopoeic? That means it spells like it sounds. Okay. Anyway, so God said, okay, here's provision. I'm going to provide food for you. I have to do that. I promise I'm going to take you into the land. So the manna, the quail, the water, all that kind of stuff. So we got two home runs for God. We got two strikes for the Hebrews. Then we come to the third test, and this is the test for their future. Okay? So they've already proven they don't take God's word for their freedom. They've already proven they don't take God's word for their food, for their provision. So then we come to the point of their future because eventually they do come to the Jordan River. And this was just probably a matter of weeks. It's a very short journey from Egypt to the Jordan River. Okay? Very short journey. So let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. A couple of weeks it takes them to get to the Jordan River, and right on the other side of the Jordan River is the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he reiterated to them, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you into the promised land. And everything God had done to this point Parting the sea, providing for them, was to keep his word. He had promised, and so he's going to keep his word. He had protected them. He had provided for them during the journey. Now he said to them, okay, here you are. Go in and take the land. Cross the river and take the land. I have given it to you. And they said, we're just former slaves in Egypt. We're not warriors. And in that land, there are mighty warriors, Lord, in case you don't know this. And there are these great fortified cities. The first one they were going to encounter was the city of Jericho that was a greatly fortified city. So they said, we don't think we can do this thing. So what they did is they sent ten spies in. This is a horrible story. It's funny in, in ways. The original Cold War. Yes, yes. They, they sent lerps. You know, you Vietnam vets, they sent some lerps in to go in and, and, and long-range you know, reconnaissance units to go in there and check it out. And find out if, uh, if they really could. And when the spies returned, eight of them said, no way, Jose, we can't do it. Only two of them said yes. And the reason they said yes is because the Lord has promised. That's the only reason Caleb and Joshua. Everything on the surface looked like, no, a bunch of slaves that have only been out of Egypt after four centuries for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks here. There's no way they can do it. But because God promised it, Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can take the land. But the other just looked at the physical characteristics and said, no, we can't. And the people listened to the majority report. Mm. The people listened to the eight and said, we agree with the eight. We don't agree with Joshua and Caleb. We cannot go in and take this land. Now, by the way, let me, let me say something to you. The majority never believes. Let that sink in for a moment. The majority never takes God at his word. True belief is always a minority behavior. Narrow is the way. That's why Jesus said, yes, exactly. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few, few are they that find it. But broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many. The majority is never the believing group. It is always the minority who will take the risk of believing God. So God says of this entire generation of adults who have said no and refused to believe his word, that not a single one of them was going to enter into the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb were the only two adults who were going to be allowed into the land, and only the children of those unbelievers were going to go into the land. So after a couple of weeks of moving and they get to the promised land, they have to spend four decades taking laps around Mount Sinai till every single one of those who rejected God's word died they never got to enter into the promise. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 22 through 23, God says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and of my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, all of these people that saw everything I did, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, they shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of the ones who spurned me see it. God destroyed an entire generation of Hebrews for not believing his word. They went back into the wilderness. 
wandering around for four decades until that entire generation had passed away. And then they came back to the Jordan River the second time, and there were only two adults that were there the first time, Joshua and Caleb, who took God at his word. And then the children who had grown up into adulthood of all of those who had disbelieved God and were sentenced to die in the wilderness. Now, Jude's message here is very clear, folks. Contend for the faith. Trust God's word. When God says something, stand upon it because in the past, he, let it, he, he destroyed an entire generation of your ancestors for this very thing which was not taking him at his word, for not believing what God said, which is unbelief. And because of it, they perished in the wilderness. If he did that to them, do you not think he will do it again? Mm. Mm. So, the first is about those who don't believe God's word. Second is about those who reject God's will. And, and this trip down memory lane is admittedly one of the more strange stories in all of the Bible. So, so prepare yourselves, put your seatbelts on, because it gets very weird. Verse 6, Jude says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, Aren't you just so excited for an explanation of this what verse? What on earth is Jude talking about? If you've been attending our life Bible studies over the last six months, you know exactly what Jude is talking about because we covered this in our first Peter study. Now, Jude is taking us back to a time before even the book of Exodus, like James just talked about, all the way back to the book of Genesis in the days of Noah. How do I know that? Because it's my job to know that. <laughs> That's why we send him to seminary. One of the reasons that I labor over our Bible studies and teach on Wednesday nights is because I believe the best way of effectively understanding parts of the Bible is to effectively understand all of the Bible. If you want to know how to understand the Old and New Testaments, you have to know the Old and New Testaments because they borrow so much from one another. They inform one another. They interact with one another. We have 66 books in the Bible, and none of them are completely alone. They all are intertwined together. And so when we get to Jude 6, we get this puzzling verse about angels and gloomy darkness and leaving their dwelling place and eternal chains, and it makes more sense if we can identify other places in the Scripture that also speak to this event to try to get a little more detail so we can understand what Jude is saying more accurately. James has said before, I, I love it when he says this, because it's a great way of, of kind of phrasing it, that we interpret the, the obscure in light of the clear. We interpret the obscure passages of Scripture in light of the clear passages of Scripture. In other words, when we come to a really funky passage that says something very strange, we don't build a whole doctrine on it. We have to interpret that strange passage in light of what is already very clear in the Scripture. But here's the catch. you got to get this. If you are going to be able to interpret the obscure passages in light of the clear passages, you have to be familiar with the clear passages. <laughs> <laughs> you have to know them yeah. in order to use them. And so a good rule of thumb, we'll just do a little Bible study 101 here for a minute. When you're studying the New Testament and you come across a passage that is weird, that says something that you think is very strange, a good first question is, are there any other passages that seem to be dealing with this same topic in the New Testament? And as it happens, there is. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. Peter says... For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, and then this is where it connects, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Again, obscure passage, but notice the similarities here. Jude talks about angels in eternal chains. First Peter talks about spirits in prison. The word spirit here is the Greek word pneuma. It's a word that means breath, wind, or spirit, but it also can be translated and often is translated as angel. And so this cues us off that Jude and Peter are talking about the same thing. Both of them are speaking about angels, and both of them are talking about some kind of prison as well. Jude talks about them leaving their proper dwelling place. Peter talks about them not formally obeying and, and being put in this sort of spiritual prison. So they're painting a picture for us, both of them, Jude and Peter, about a time when angels disobeyed, they left their proper dwelling place, and as a result, they were punished by being put in some kind of prison. 
And we get another clue in the Peter passage for when this happened. He says, in the days of Noah. So again, come back to Bible Study 101 for a minute. When we have this obscure passage, we ask first, does the New Testament deal with this? A second question to ask is, does the Old Testament deal with this? And as 1 Peter alludes to, it does. Genesis chapter 6 deals with the days of Noah. Look at Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that's a word, by the way, that every time it's used in Genesis means angel. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So Genesis is describing a time when angels left their proper dwelling places, they took human women as wives, they had a sexual relationship with them, they had these strange offspring called the Nephilim, and what Jude and Peter are saying is that they left their proper dwelling place when this happened, and as a result of their disobedience are now being punished. They're saying that God came to them and said, what have you done? And the angels were like, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. (laughs) That is, when he said that in the first service, I nearly (laughs) fell off the stool. (laughs) That is the best. Yeah, yeah. They they engaged in this behavior and God said, (laughs) straight to jail. Straight to jail, in jail until judgment day when Jesus comes back. It's a crazy story. It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world. (laughs) The better question for us might be, what is the point of the story? What is Jude trying to say to us? What is he communicating to us? He's communicating the danger of rejecting God's will. When, When we look to the past and we see individuals who rejected the will of God, it works out very badly for them every single time. When we reject God's will, listen, it will not work out well. It will be very bad for you. Look at the words used to describe this. Eternal prison, gloomy chains. I mean, these are not happy words. So let me just say, there are two distinct ways I believe the people of God today reject God's will. And we'll talk about them here for a minute. Number one, it happens when we deny his demands. When (laughs) When we deny his demands. Now, where do we find the demands of God? The Word of God. The Word of God, right, absolutely. That's why James just dealt with what he dealt with. The Word of God outlines what God expects of us, and when we reject those demands, we are rejecting His will. Let me give you a truth. The rejection of God's Word always results in the rejection of God's will. Every single time. Always. You have to understand that. There are people who have come to me in this church who are rejecting what the Word of God says and living in outright rebellion against the Word of God, and when they were called on it, they have told me, I believe I am living within the will of God. That is a lie from the pit of hell itself. Welcome to the ministry. And I've said that there are people in this church, they're not in this church anymore, and not because I had to remove them, because they were just tired of hearing truth and decided to go somewhere else. This is where we are in the church today. We have Christians who live their lives contrary to the Word of God. They are firmly convinced they are doing God's will, and they are not. They have been deceived. One fantastic way to violate the will of God is simply to just violate the Word of God. Mm It will move you right outside God's will just like that. So it happens when we deny His demands. Secondly, it happens when we deny His design. And the reality is, is that everyone in this room and on this earth has a design. And when we reject that design that God has given us, we reject God's will. This is what's happening in in the passage that Jude is dealing with. Angels had a design. They had a purpose. They had a place within creation history. And Jude says they left their proper dwelling place. And when that happened, they were in violation of God's design and thus were rejecting God's will. Now, I want to get very practical here for a moment and talk about a very relevant and very timely issue for our time with regard to this denial of design. God created the world. You need to understand this very, very specifically with design in mind, okay? Even the order of creation has design to it. We talked about this in my Old Testament class, but if you look at day one of creation in Genesis chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then it says he creates the light 
and separates the light from darkness, and there is day and night. Okay, so day and night are established on day one. You go all the way to day four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, all objects that govern day and night. So we have some corresponding parts here. Days one and four relate to one another. There's design here. You get to day two, and God uh, separates the water from the sky. And so all of a sudden, we have the sea, and we have the sky, the expanse, as it is called. Day five... We look at what God does. He creates all of the sea-dwelling creatures and all of the birds of the sky, the things that will dwell in those places. So days two and five have corresponding parts as well. You can pick up the pattern and assume three and six are going to, and they do. Day day three, God creates the vegetation of the earth. Day six, God creates all of the land-dwelling creatures that will eat the vegetation of the earth in order to survive. There's, there's design in, in even the order of creation, days one and four, two and five, three and six. Now, something else happens on day six that is very important. God creates humanity, and we are set apart in a category of our own for two distinct reasons. Actually, really one distinct reason, but, but another reason that is, that is very uh, emphasized here. And it comes in Genesis 1.27, a very important passage in the Old Testament. It says this, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. So God creates man in his own image and, and with a distinct design in both a male and female counterpart. To use modern terminology, creation of humanity is done in terms of a binary Okay, a male and female. Very, very hateful word today. Yeah, I'm going to use it a lot. That is rejected. Nothing can be binary today. It's going to get worse. Uh, It's going (laughs) to get worse. This is a topic that I think has somehow become very confusing, not only in the world but in the church, and and specifically with the younger generation, my generation, the millennial generation, and younger. There is a lot of confusion about where to stand in all this, and so I want to speak to it. I don't want to take this flippantly. I don't want you to think that I'm making light of this. It's a very serious topic, uh, one that I believe affects the lives of many people who are created in God's image, uh, and that is this topic of gender identity or transgenderism. Um, The world wants you to think very clearly that you get to decide who you are. So if, if you are someone who feels like a male, despite the fact that you were born female, the world says you get to choose that. You get to decide that you can actually be a male. If you feel like a female, though you were born assigned with male parts, it doesn't matter. You get to decide that. The world wants you to believe that it is your choice to make, and anyone who tells you that you cannot make that choice hates you, that you are evil because you are unwilling to accept that person as they are. This, dear people of City on a Hill, is something we must contend for. It is not up for grabs. This is not, hear me when I say this, this is not a social issue. Don't, do not reduce this to a social issue. Do not reduce this to a political issue. This is a theological issue. There are many things in the Bible, listen, that we're given great latitude for in how we Design, define, and redefine, okay? We have freedom in so many categories. There are so many things that are necessary for a flourishing society to succeed. Hospitals, museums, schools, and apart from just basic biblical principles, God gives us absolute latitude to decide whatever we want to do in those categories. We are free as a bird to define and redefine all we want. Little Leonard Skinner reference there for you. (laughs) Gender identity is not something that falls into that category. We don't get to decide that. God has told us how he has done this. He is the designer. This is a theological issue. God has made the pinnacle of creation, made in his image in a very specific way. And when we walk in opposition to that design, we are moving ourselves outside of the will of God every single time. It's a truth issue, and we have to be willing to speak truth to it. Beyond the reality, let's just be honest. Again, 
beyond the reality that it is provably psychologically damaging to people who operate outside of their design. And it is, by the way, very damaging psychologically to do this. There is an overwhelming amount of data that backs this up. The American Academy of Pediatrics, which is the legit one, there's two, there's, there's the American College, the American Academy. The American Academy's been around since the 1930s. Seculars all get out. Doesn't give a crap about Christianity, okay? So this is their numbers, their statistics, based on a survey in 2018 that said that 49% of transgender males either seriously considered or attempted suicide. That's almost half. Almost half. One percentage. 35% females seriously considered or, or attempted suicide. These are dreadfully high statistics, unfathomably high statistics. Now, the academy argues that this is a result of bullying and unfair disadvantages to this minority group. This was a survey done in 2018. So let's, let's talk about this for a minute. The survey done in 2018, that was three years ago. The last three years have been full of all kinds of improvements with regard to this topic. Dozens of initiatives and laws have been put into place that bolster and protect and encourage the trans community. The big mean orange man is out of office. No more, no more mean stuff going on. We're a welcoming, loving world now, full of kindness, full of all kinds of encouragement. And yet, Forbes magazine said in, in, in 2021, 52% trans people either seriously considered or attempted suicide. That went up. Three, the num the three number percentage went up. points. Yeah. Hmm. Now, you would expect a decrease in those numbers as the environment improves. And if beyond the, that... If the environment was the problem. If the environment was the problem. Yeah. Beyond that, you would expect other minority groups who experience similar bullying or unfair disadvantages to experience the same kind of response with regard to suicide, and you simply do not Race, for example, let's talk about that. I'm just hitting all the buttons this morning. <laughs> Holy. So I need, to, I need to move away from you. So you would expect, well, we're just going to talk real about this. Yeah. We're just going to be real we about this. got to be real. You would expect in other minority groups who face unfair disadvantages for suicide numbers to be at least similar, and they are not. In fact, in America, white people are three times more likely to commit suicide than any other minority group there is. In fact, statistically speaking, if you just look at the global perspective on this, suicide is a privilege of the educated and the wealthy. When you go into third world countries, suicide is a almost non-existent concept. It is very much a privilege of those who are most educated and most wealthy in their social atmosphere. They are the ones who are most prone to it. The problem has nothing to do with the environment the problem has to do with a rejection of design. When you move yourself away from how you were created by God who loves you and has a plan and purpose for you, it tends to work badly for you. What about sexual reassignment surgeries? That's, I mean, you would expect that. Yeah, to... let's go ahead let's... while we're in the territory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> let's just do it. Let's just talk about it. You would expect it to be better. You would expect it to improve. It actually makes it worse. The numbers for depression and anxiety actually increase for people who go through with the surgery. This is serious stuff. I hope you get this. This is real life. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be a, a political commentator here or a social commentator. I don't give a crap about that. This is a theological issue where real people created in the image of God are falling into such a place of despair because people think they're helping them when they're in fact hurting them. It's not okay. And my generation in particular has this idea that I'm just going to be kind and nice and gentle in hopes that I'll make a good impression on everybody. You know, if I can just be nice, then maybe I can break the stereotypical concept of what a Christian is. And, and by all counts, historically, Christians have not handled this well. That's right. We've been all about truth and very little about love. And the danger is that we're now swinging to the other side where we're all about love and not about truth. And you've got to understand, that is equally hateful. It is equally problematic. You are smilingly, passively leading them to hell is what you're doing. You're not a light. You're darkness. You're embodying darkness around them because you're more concerned about your social standing and people accepting you and not thinking you're mean or ugly or whatever than giving the truth. And again, you do it with kindness. You do it with love. You do it with compassion. But the reality is, is that your moral position based on the scripture is offensive to the world. I said this morning in the first service, we read an article together this week, and then he put it on his Facebook page. It's written by a genuine academic, smart dude, so it's a little difficult to wade through some of it for most people. But the end conclusion is true. He said, 
many Christians have taken the approach, I'm going to be nice, I'm going to be kind, I'm going to be courtesy, courteous, I'm going to be respectful to these folks, and we should be. There's no question about that. We should be. In the past, we've not been as good at that, but we should be. But then by my presence, they are going to come maybe move toward truth. And he said, if truth is never spoken, how can they? And, and, the, and, and the conclusion was this. The world doesn't hate our theology. You can talk about Jesus as your Savior, all the want, his death, his resurrection, and they go, well, that's stupid stuff. I don't believe it. But if that's what you want to believe, if you want to believe in a myth, you're more than welcome. But the moment... You say a man can't be a woman? The moment you espouse a biblical sexuality, you are evil. And that's what we're seeing today, isn't it? People who are kind and courteous and respectful and believe that all people ought to have all the rights equally today in this country, we all believe that. The Constitution requires Absolutely. it. But once you speak, they're not threatened by our theology. They are threatened by biblical morality. And let me say, let me say it's one thing to argue against the world's position on this. The world is going to do what the world is going to do. They're, they're acting according to the nature of the world. It's a, an entirely different thing when the church decides to just take a nap on this issue. Denying our design is not a, re a rejection of some social phenomenon. It's a rejection of God's will. We are designed specifically with a purpose. And when we move against that, historically, it does not go well. As we see with the disobedient angels, it doesn't work well when we reject God's will. And this is just one example of how we reject design. There are certainly many others, but I think this is one that is very front and center right now. This is at the, this is at the apex of what the Christian community in America is dealing with. Absolutely. I read an article this week, the Episcopalian church is being split right down the middle over this issue. Churches that believe we must hold to the truth of God's design in the Word, Churches that believe that's old hat, we just need to open the door for everything, and it's splitting them. Next year, the Methodist denomination is having a big meeting over this very issue right here. It is going to split the denomination right in half. The Reformed Church of, the, of America is involved in this as well, uh, which is the old Dutch Reformed, which is the oldest denomination in America. They are being split right down the middle on this. This is an issue that Christians have to decide. Are we going to stand for truth? With love, are we just going to say we need to love and reject the truth? Well, and again, let's come back to the vision of the church for a minute. How can we say we're all about the help, hope, and healing of Jesus when we're not willing to give help, hope, and healing to the people who need it the most? Which is truth in love. How, how can we do that? How can we say that? We're a walking contradiction if that's the case. If, if I just go, well, yeah, you're fine just the way you are, well, then what's the point of help, hope, and healing? Who needs it? We just narrow the field. We cut our feet out from under us. That's not the gospel that God called us to proclaim. It's weak. It's totally weak. And Jude's message is, if God did this to them for he'll, rejecting his will. He'll his, do it to us. He will do it to you. Are we having fun? So we take a trip down memory lane. We find those who don't believe the word of God. We find those who reject the will of God. Last, we find those who reject God's ways. Jude gives us one last example of this kind of behavior that we are to uh, avoid, and again, it's a timely one. We talked about transgenderism. We might as well talk about what this actual verse is explicitly dealing with, which is the topic of homosexuality, and, and we have to deal with it um, because it's here. Look at verse 7. Jude says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example... They're an example to us by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Put that on a coffee mug. <laughs> what is Jude referring to? He's referring again to another story in the book of Genesis, this time in Genesis chapter 19. Lot and Abraham come to a place where they're ready to camp out, start a life. Abraham, being the nice guy, says, Lot, you choose any land you want first, and then I'll, I'll go wherever else. I won't impede upon you. Lot, it says, pitches his tent towards Sodom, okay, specific city in the area where they are. Sodom and Gomorrah are very well known in the Bible because of this story, but uh, if you're not familiar with it, then I will just quickly recap it. Lot is visited by two men in Genesis 19 who, as it turns out, are not men at all. They're angels. Um, angels have this kind of weird history in the Bible of looking like men and doing things that seem like men. Who are um, not rejecting their design. Who are not rejecting who are their design. messengers of God. Absolutely. Lot. So being in form of a man is not the problem. It's what these others in Genesis 6 were doing that was the issue. 
But they come to Lot, and they're, they're there, and, and they're going to stay the night in Sodom before they pass on. They're coming to scope out the city, and Lot says, hey, why don't you come and stay with me in my house? And so they do. And things are going well up until right around it's the time for, for sleep, and men of the city, both young and old, it says, come banging on the door, demanding that Lot release the two men that they may have sexual relationships with them, presumably forcefully. It's a pretty ugly story. Uh, the angels at this point reveal their identity. They blind the men supernaturally in some way, and they look at Lot and say, you better get out of here because it's about to go down. Fire is coming. Lot barely escapes. His wife does not. She looks back, turns into a pillar of salt. God told her not to, and, and she did, and uh, she faces the consequences. And it says that as he is leaving and gets outside of the city, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities of Adma and Zeboim are destroyed by sulfur and fire. Sulfur, by the way, another word for brimstone. That's where fire and brimstone comes from, this story. It's an awful story. And did you know that it's referenced 23 times in the Scripture? 23 different times in the scripture, which says to me that it's a significant story. There was some significance to it, apparently even for Jude, which is why he's reminding us of it. Now, the question again for us becomes, why is he retelling this story? Well, for one, he's connecting the story to the story in Genesis 6 by telling us that both of these, the disobedient angels and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, have something in common. There's something about them. They're acting similarly. They both leave their proper dwelling place, and they act based on what they decided they wanted at that time. They were unrestricted. Forget what God says. This is what I want, so I'm going to pursue it. And verse 7 says they indulged. They acted in sexual immorality. It's not that they just had unnatural desires. They pursued unnatural desires. Those are both very key terms. And this is something that I want you to understand with regard to this topic. I'm not going to talk this morning about questions that Christians have with regard to people in their lives who are homosexuals. I get a lot of questions. Should I go to my friend's wedding or my family member's wedding? Or We're not going to talk about those. We may do a sermon series sometimes where we get practical like that. We don't have the time this morning, nor is that really even the point of this morning. I'll the, be on vacation that week. You'll be on vacation that week. <laughs> the, the reality is, is that this, this story... These two stories really serve to show what happens not when we are tempted by or have thoughts on something that is wrong, but when we pursue what we know is wrong. That is the, act, the, the issue here. The problem that Jude is speaking to with regard to homosexuality is not the passion, but the pursuit. It's not the attraction, but the action towards it. That, therein lies the problem. You know, there's actually no Bible verse that condemns a feeling of same-sex attraction. There's not. Every time it's dealt with, it's the action of it. And people the ask the question, why does it even exist? Well, because we live in a fallen world. Yes. Yes. And, and we're all affected by that fall in various ways. But again, it comes down to this question of how the people of God will respond. How will we address this issue? Will we remain silent so as to keep our good social standing? Will we remain silent so as not to appear as hateful or, or whatever other terms are being thrown around, bigoted uh, towards people with same-sex attraction? Or will we, with kindness and compassion and love, speak truth to the, the fact that God has commanded us not to act in these ways? That's the question. It all comes down to that. Will you be someone who stands for truth, or will you be someone who remains silent? Let me tell you, if you stand for truth, prepare. You will get annihilated for this. You will get absolutely destroyed. This is hateful. It's hate speech. It's time to boycott. It's time to protest. It's crazy. And here's the truth. Let me just be honest with you. Those tactics of the world to silence you are working. They are. They're working. They're winning that fight right now. Because Christians cannot bear to face the, the ugly insults of the mean old world. Somehow we have become terrified of what in, the world might think of us. We live in fear of the world in, in many ways. What did, what did the Apostle John say to us in 1 John 3.13? Brothers, do not be surprised. Don't be shocked by this. That the world hates you. The world hates your guts. So the, that's the question, really, I think. That kind of is a good summary for all of this. Does the world hate you? 
I want you to consider that. Does the world hate you? Or are you so busy trying to convince the world that you're a pretty nice person by remaining silent, by compromising, by being like that umpire who decided to just redefine the rules because it's easier than living for truth. Let me give you a closing truth, closing thought here that will help you kind of summarize all this. When we reject God's word, when we take God's word and we go, I'm done with it, we will inevitably redefine God's ways and we will move outside of God's will every time. When you reject the word of God, you will eventually, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, you will eventually redefine the ways of God. And when you do that, you will be outside of his will. And what Jude wants you to understand more than anything else, dear people, is that if he did this to them, God, he'll do it to you as well. We face the same exact threat. Will we be contentious? Will we contend for the truth once and for all passed down by the saints? Or will we, like the people in the wilderness, like the angels in Genesis 6, like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah face an alternate threat from God? That's the question. Pray with me. Father, thank you. It's hard to say thank you on a passage like this because of how hard it is, because of, of, of the gut check that it creates in us or that at least it should create in us. But we thank you for that because we know, God, that, that you uh, discipline us not because you are angry with us, God, but because you desire us to be like your son, Jesus. And we know being like Jesus requires us to speak truth and loving kindness and that it will ultimately get us crucified for it. We know that. It should not surprise us then when we face the kind of opposition that the world has for us. And so, God, I just pray, this is my prayer, that today we would embrace the opposition that we would say, the world hates us, so be it. Bring it on. Because I would rather stand in opposition to the world than the will of God. How we love you and we thank you for truth, even when it's difficult. Lord, especially when it's difficult, we thank you for it. Because we know that it's trustworthy, that it's our foundation, and that when we stand upon it, God, you honor us and bless us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I told James yesterday that this is a, a sermon that I have, I was as ready and as, uh, I don't want to say excited. Uh, convinced. Convinced I needed to preach, and it's the least excited I have been to preach it because I know the weight of it. I know the reality that, that people, we're dealing with real people, we're dealing with real lives, it's a hard and messy topic, and so... Um, I don't want to presume that this is just a simple thing, but it's something we need to hear. It's something we need to be reminded of, that we don't fall into the same error. And the greatest curse of the church in America is that we love our comfort. Oof. And it's stressful when we have to give, let, allow truth to destroy our comfort. It's true. It's true. God bless you. Well, it's See a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs>